Hi, everyone, and welcome back to RPG R&D. I am one of your hosts, Jess Geyer. I am one half of Wannabe Games, and I make tabletop role-playing games. And I'm here with my co-host, Craig Campbell. Hello, Craig. Hello, Jess. We are back. Yes. Um, I'm Craig Campbell. I'm the owner of Nerdburger Games. We took a little break time around the holidays, but we are back stronger than ever with uh, a friend of ours back on the show. Welcome back, Jason. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Jason, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I've been on the podcast before, uh, so I'll keep it quick. Uh, I am a role-playing game designer and publisher, bottle washer, uh, for Genesis of Legend Publishing over in Ottawa, Canada. Uh, I have been working as a game designer and publisher since 2018, sorry, 2008, roughly. I was going to say 2018. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I am now the equivalent of a graybeard uh, in game design land. Um, and I have lots of thoughts about today's topic. Yeah. <laughs> what is today's topic, Craig? Oh, okay. It's a long, it's a, it's a sentence, not just like a couple of words. And uh, you'll see it in the, when we get to the design section as well. But it's, uh, the way we're phrasing it is what the GM focuses on tells players what the game is about. And that seems obvious, like, right. The, the GM is jamming the game and whatever they're talking about, that's what the game is about. But uh, I think that there's a lot more nuance to that. There's things that we as GMs can do to reinforce kind of what the game what that particular game is going to be about through how we present information, the types of things that we that we focus on during different times in the game, um, what we do, perhaps do with with the, the off time away from the session, like what happens in between, what happens during the session zero. Um, there's a lot of uh, uh, things that you kind of telepathy to the players kind of secretly without really you know like you, you you might be explicitly stating some things but you're also kind of telling them some things by just what you're talking about what you're focusing on and, and how you're doing it yeah there there is a lot that we can uh focus on i'm interested in hearing your initial thoughts here jason so basically i have different thoughts about this tool so th this tool is everywhere on the spectrum from player to game master to designer. Uh, so it's um, an interesting challenge to figure out um, which elements we're talking about because home ruling and house ruling and hacking is part of the fundamental core culture. So everyone's a designer to some extent. And this is one of those places where GM skills and design chops tend to blur into each other. So I, I often um, use this tool when I'm running a game by saying things such as, um, okay, you have this, you have a, um, a fist fight over here. Um, what, what do you, um, what does the situation look like two hours later when you're both bloody and hauling yourselves out of the bar. I have just elided a two hour period of game time where 
another GM might say, let's pull out some minis and figure and model this bar fight. Mm-hmm. Um, which allows me as a uh, GM to decide and, and establish that um, bar fights like this are routine. Bar fights like this are not serious. Uh, and that they're not the, they're a side diversion. They're not the point of the game. Um, at so best, just, at best, the aftermath yes. of the fight yeah. is important. So basically, uh, deciding what things you don't want to focus on, um, allows you to reinforce the themes and um, minimize the fictional importance of a particular um, aspect of the game. Because we all uh, allied certain parts of our characters' lives because there's we don't usually describe how they go to bed, uh, how they sleep uh, every night, uh, How they use the bathroom, uh, all of these things. Yeah, no, no, we simply <laughs> say, assume... Yeah, all of that got done on the side because that's not terribly exciting. Unless Hopefully. you're like me and you make a joke like, Hopefully. well, you haven't gone to the bathroom in yeah, yeah. two weeks. <laughs> right. You're an elf. It's fine. And if you and if you do then suddenly start describing the meal that the characters are at, then that suddenly brings importance to the meal. The expectation from the players is that something is going to happen here. Yep. Or if they know your your GMing style. Perhaps the the something important is we're going to experience the world for a bit. We're going to immerse ourselves in what a meal, you know, what a big extravagant meal is like in this world. There will be chit chat. There might be some plot points, but it's mostly about like we're going to just have fun talking, you know, kind of being in the world for a little while. That that might be the point of the meal. Yeah, there's there's like a certain emphasis then if you are now focusing your energy somewhere your, your narrative energy somewhere that you usually don't it's because in this moment it is important it's out of the norm maybe it's different than a meal that you would normally be eating um maybe maybe there's poison in the cheese like whatever it is I would definitely be like keyed in on that Jason I liked a thing that you said um early on where you said that this um homebrewing and, and DM style and, and slight rule changes, like for example, fast forwarding through a fight scene and focusing just on the aftermath is part of the fun culture of gaming. And yeah, I love that. It is definitely part of the culture uh, that that the GMs have a lot of agency, of players do too, but GMs have a lot of agency in how they're interpreting their rules to make these narrative moments happen. And I think one of the most interesting aspects of this which is both a technique and a technique that i have mechanized in my games is you decide exactly when you call for a role anyways you always decide if i'm running um let's say pathfinder for political reasons um i would not necessarily uh call for a role in certain circumstances if it would not be interesting if they failed. Um, if someone's looking for a clue and not finding the clue is going to derail everything, then 
I I may make you roll the dice, but you're going to find the clue anyways. Um, I'm not necessarily going to engage the mechanics and engage the formal uh, task resolution mechanisms. Um, and that aspect of what, which um, elements that could, are, should be mechanized and which elements should remain purely fictional uh, based on the narrative uh, gravity and the narrative inertia uh, in play. I think, too, that signals to players that they are also allowed to make some of these decisions as well, which can create a lot of really interesting dynamic play. And that's some of the best play that I've seen, um, where you get a player who says, well, okay, so you're saying that there's a group of uh, trolls under the Brooklyn Bridge that are eating tourists. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, get some uh, used clothing from the local charity shop. Uh, we're going to dress up like random uh, passersby hiding our suits of fae armor underneath the ragged human clothes. And uh, we'll uh, do a honeypot scheme under the bridge. <laughs> As a GM, I'd be like, yes, you do. <laughs> you do. Now let's get to that point. As you're uh, trying to hide your face sword from uh, sight as you um, try to lure in the trolls to eat your, eat your faces. Now, if that were set in Chicago, it sounds like a Dresden Files uh, book right there. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> I, I love that. I, I, I love that your decisions, too, like the things that you suddenly imply as a DM, things you focus on, are also giving powerful hints to the players, yep. tacitly saying, you do it, too. This is cool to do. Yep. And uh, it also, because... <sighs> Here's the little sneaky bit of uh, game design in play there. By allowing players to make those kinds of declarations, they are self-motivating. Uh, they're self-motivated, and therefore they're going to be more engaged. Um, so they get a better result if they take control of the narrative and make bold declarations. So it's a lot easier to GM. Mm -hmm. So you reward them with, yeah, you are more successful when you just declare certain things happen. And I'll only step in if it makes sense to interfere with you. Right. Rather than dragging them into the scenario, you're, exactly. you're putting the opportunity in front of them and letting them make the, de the declaration do it. And by, yeah, by doing that, you're, um, you're, you're six, like you're, 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 setting everybody up for success yep it's really making makes... it's making your job a little easier it's making players more engaged it's doing all the things that we're we're talking about it makes sense for me too from like um i mean you can say a lot about educational research but a lot of educational research says that students are more engaged when they have control and agency in the classroom as well so that really really uh, makes sense with what i know about my career too um and it it can be a little bit of a difficult way to GM, but I think it's really rewarding as well. Like like Jason said, 
some of the best moments I've had were completely player led. And it's really funny when you still get the credit for the fun things that they did without your input. I'll be like, yes, it was me. You're right. You're right. I did not interfere with you cooking this meal. Yeah, I did a great job in the kitchen. It's the equivalent of going to the improv show and the audience member who throws out the suggestion gets all the credit for the funny that comes comes afterwards. Um, When we, when we got this uh, topic, you know, when, when this one rolled up here with Jason, um, the thing that hit me um, that I wrote down. I want to make sure I, I touch on this one because there's lots, as always with all these topics, there's always a lot to talk about is how you cliffhanger mm. um, says a lot of uh, uh, about the game. You know, if, if you're setting as the GM, if you're setting up the cliffhanger um, regularly as at a, at a fight, like the end of the game session kind of ends right about the time that potential violence is going to break out. Or if it's, um, you tend to do it when, the uh, the characters meet an important NPC and suddenly have the chance now to question that NPC or whatever. If you do it as well, now they come up over the rise and they see this great vista before them, this place that they've never seen before that tells you that like, oh, we're setting up like this big setting exploration kind of thing um, or, you know, delving into the world. Or there's the literal cliffhanger of like, well, your characters are all on a car and you're going over a cliff. You're like, will you get out before the car goes over the cliff? See you next week. Um, and we'll figure out whether that happens or not. And as a GM, if you are regularly setting up one type of cliffhanger, the players will start to think of the game as being about that. Is that being much more important? Because every time they come back to the game, be like, well, the first thing we're going to do is have a fight. Or the first thing we're going to do is have to save our skins. Um, you know, so if you're as a GM are looking to provide a varied experience, uh, a game that has more uh, different things going on is just to kind of give thought to how you wrap up the, each game session and what kind of cliffhanger or you know, a button you put on the end of a session, because that's going to spark what happens in the next session. And if it's, if you do it varied enough, you know, players will, will know that, well, we're going to be getting a lot of different things in this game. Whereas if you do one thing, a lot of the time, they're going to come to expect that. And if you suddenly change uh, as we talked about earlier like if you always set up on a cliffhanger (laughs) and then you you know for seven sessions and then on the eighth session you set up um for meeting an npc that you have no reason to fight that also you know will will get the players thinking about like oh well what's going on here like we always are just about to get into a fight that's kind of what the group is about we get into we get into scrapes all the time um but suddenly you know like are we are we supposed to fight this person? Like the players might start questioning like what you're expecting um, because you've established a pattern and now are breaking that pattern. And that's not bad necessarily. The players questioning that it keeps them on their toes. Um, but it's something that as GMs, it's useful to be uh, aware of. It also helps direct their character development themselves, not only like narratively, but also the mechanics of their character development. If there's a leveling system in the game that you're using um, and you are, they're constantly getting in fights, they're probably going to eschew the more social aspects or whatever other aspects of the game are there in favor of some skills and abilities that will help them in those scenes. Cause everyone wants to take part in the scenes that make up the game if you do a lot of diplomacy in your game they're going to have more diplomacy skills if you end on a cliffhanger like craig was describing right before like right when the characters are about to level up 
they are going to level up in a way that will help them with the next fight. That's very video gamey, metagamey kind of thing, but also kind of the way that real world world works. Uh, I, you know, I focus my energy on things that I do. That's where I train my skills, so to speak. Uh, I don't get better at things that aren't going to be useful for me. Um, yeah, and that I don't think will be useful for me. Narratively, I mean, even you say you say it's metagamey, but that and that's true. But narratively, it's very satisfying. Mm-hmm. Like the characters all level up, up you know, using D and D or Pathfinder as an example. You're all fourth level, and you're gonna and we set up a, a combat at the end of this session. Next session, we're all coming back at fifth level, and there's a whole bunch of goblins out in front of you. Well, is that wizard gonna take fireball for fifth level? It's a very distinct possibility because that means that that that's going to give the wizard's player the opportunity to be super cool right away mm-hmm. um, and do a thing that like will save everybody's hide right now. And it's something, you know, like rather than saving that for down the road when they, you know, learning, learning, um, you know, mass damage spells like that. Yeah, like it's 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 narratively satisfying because you could you could see that in a television series if you had a you know like something happens at the end and everybody's like what are we going to do and then they come back and somebody busts out an ability or or pulls off a stunt that you didn't think they could do that's satisfying narratively it shows the character advancing it shows them reacting to new situations by developing a new skill that's fun so one other thing that i find particularly useful with this is it can manage the social dynamics of the players to ensure that the um, quieter players who are being spoken over have more opportunities when necessary to de-emphasize the characters that are being uh, taking more than their fair proportion of the uh, screen time. And generally to make a more um, varied game experience by allocating the attention where it's needed using your GM authority. Um, Conversely, I have had situations where I know that someone is there because uh, they want to be there, they want entertainment, but they, they can't make any huge dramatic decisions right now. They've had a very rough day. So I will constrain the focus on other characters so that they can watch, they can participate, but they don't have to make any big decisions in that session because I know what the player is going through right now. Mm-hmm. So that's or, another as aspect a cor- of focus that I appreciate. As a corollary, I've literally been in, in, in games where there's a player or two who is just super quiet. That's just who they are. And they're there to hang out with their friends, crack a couple jokes, roll some dice, and once in a while, whip off a pithy comment. And they don't necessarily even care to be like, to have that extra inclusion. Um, and that's okay. I mean, there's that's that, that's what they're there for. Um, it gives the center of attention people, the people that like to be in the thick of it, a little, the, those players have a little more time available. Um, and the GM knows that. And the GM can, you know, make decisions in game that are going to like, well, we're going to propel the game with your characters, but this other character comes along for the ride and every so often we'll do something that propels the story through the the quiet player's character. Um, and everybody comes to understand, well, that's just, that's how this works. That's the dynamic of the group. That's what the players want out of the game. And that can be extremely enjoyable. I think a lot of people who are extroverted, um, not that there's a sharp dichotomy between extroverts or introverts or anything, but 
that's how I like to be at a party. I like to sit around and listen to other people talk and once in a while throw in a comment or two. And that's really fun for me. I'm different when I game, but that's really fun for me at a party. So what what your players are focusing on tells you a lot about their play style as well. And you shouldn't take it as like, I need to change them or fix them. It's a little off topic, but thought I would throw that in there. (laughs) <laughs> and there's a good there's a good uh, conclusion to pull out of that too, which is that in the best groups, in the best circumstances, this will become a synergistic thing between the GM and the players. The GM will be saying and doing things that tell the players what the game about is about, and then the players will recognize that and reinforce it by, you know, kind of following that lead and and making sure that the game stays about that. So when like if the GM describes things like you know gets it really gets into description really likes tries to immerse people into the thing we we're, we're going to like really get wordy about certain things in, in in descriptions in the game you know um there may be players who that isn't their thing and that's fine but then there's players who are like oh I'm that's permission like the game is just it's not all about combat and getting out of cars before they go over cliffs and meeting npcs it's also about just like enjoying this setting and inventing things in this world that we just in we just create like oh this is my character's hometown you know like now I'm going to tell you a little bit about like where my character came from that I'm inventing on the fly or that I've developed <laughs> through extensive backstory planning um, that's one of those things too, that the GM, like if the GM is constantly bringing up character history stuff, that tells you something about how the game's going to work. We're going to tie these characters and their backgrounds and their families and their, their friends and their hometowns and everything into these stories. Um, and that, that, you know, that, that's something that the players can latch onto and know that that's going to be coming that like, even if their character hasn't been tied in, they've got a history put together, they can expect it. Yeah. I think what it comes down to is the the things you do at the table, what you spend time at the table is what your campaign is like. The things you do every day is what your life is like. The things you spend time on makes up your game. And you should think about it. You should think about your your day-to-day, your game-to-game structure. It has a lot of signals. And it, and, it, it and strikes this, me. I'm oh, sorry. So, Go ahead. No. Go. It strikes me. Um, I was I was thinking about it at the time when Jason was talking initially about like what you don't talk about, and I in my head I was like, oh, that's the negative space of GMing, mm. um, which I think is a is a useful way to kind of a useful thing to keep in mind as a player too is like art has negative space it's like it's not just the lines of the art it's also like what's happening between how big are the gaps what are the what's the blank space look like that that informs something about the art and GMing is. And, and playing games is storytelling and storytelling is art. So there's negative space, like what you're not talking about, what you're not showing, what you're not describing um, tells you something about the story. It tells you that like, okay, you know, people eat. Okay. We don't have to worry. We're not worried about characters getting poisoned because people eat all the time. But <laughs> if we suddenly start focusing on meals, then we start, and we know it's a political game and it's going to be like a lot of Machiavellian backstabbing. Well, now we have to start thinking about poison because we're going to, all of a sudden the GM is describing all these meals and things being served and like individual dishes being brought to individual people. And what does that mean? And... Exactly. Yeah. Um, one of the key advantages we have as a tabletop uh, GMs versus computer games is that we have all of that discretion to 
adjust the focus. Um, it is extremely difficult for a computer to be able to model uh, huge varieties of um, of subject matter. So they have to carefully define the focus for each individual thing. We get to say, oh, on session one, we're going to focus on meals and the social dynamics of this broken family. And in session two, we're going to have a heist breaking into that family's uh, vault so that we can secure the dowry uh, that the patriarch refuses to pay for his daughter. Like, you, you can't do that kind of improvisation during a, in a computer game. But as humans, we can do that. And that's one of our great strengths. Yes. That's what I like so much about TTRPGs. Like, I like a good video game, don't get me wrong, but I'd much rather play a TTRPG than a visual novel, for example. Uh, what about our, our game design topic, everyone? What about, what are we focusing on? <laughs> <laughs> um, in, in a related vein, it's um, this is in part a designer question, but also in part a uh, you know producer and publisher question, um, and in part a uh, uh, an art director question and a graphic design question. It's like everything about uh, about making a game product, um, which is to say, what does the book presentation or and, and we use book generically, you know, might be a PDF game or whatever. Um, what does the book presentation tell the reader about the game? Because there's a lot you can communicate um, just by what's in that book, not not the specific words, not the like clearly, you know, the, the words tell you how to play the game. They pre present rules and character creation information and background and setting and GM stuff and whatnot. But like, what about all the other aspects other than the actual word by word paragraphs and what they tell you about the game? Because I don't think everybody necessarily looks at this, but I'm sure that you listener, if you look at your games on your shelf or in your computer and you compare some different types of games, you will see very different presentations of things and very, there'll be market differences. And you can, you can tell what is important to the game by what's being presented in the book and how it's being presented. And I'll say for me, this is like the part I agonize the most over when I'm designing something and putting something together, because I do layout for one of the games and deciding things like, oh, what does this typeface, what typeface am I going to choose? So it conveys the right message. Like it can get down to literally what font and what size of font I'm using and what that means. Like it is a lot of work. This is like hard. <laughs> this is hard because I don't have really any formal training in graphic design or or things like that um but if you're publishing your own book and you're putting it together like if especially if you're doing it for the first time you'll be shocked how much effort it takes to put a book together after you've written all the text after all the text is finalized and edited and whatever gosh um on, like Yes, I, I agree completely. Uh, some beautiful examples of games that use their uh, presentation to focus on the gameplay experience. I would highlight um, uh, The Thousand Year Vampire, which is the actual book design 
Just being, pulling it off a shelf and showing us. <laughs> yes. Uh, it looks like it is an old library book. Take, literally stolen from a library, including worn edges on the side. Um, there's a, uh, on the inside corner, uh, there's a fake pencil written price on it. Uh, a withdrawn stamp on one of the pages. Uh, so it's clearly an in-world artifact uh, with sticky notes and everything. Yeah, it's it's built out of like it looks like a lot of things have been pasted into the book. Um, it's written in a lot of different fonts and handwriting styles. Um, it looks yeah. yeah, it looks like something that has age to it that has has had care put into it that is worn that is showing um, that it's lived in, which is appropriate for a thousandth year old vampire that like they they have age and they they have been they have lived in they they have a lived in look they have a lived in look and feel <laughs> they've been around for a long time um uh, they're long in the fang and, and oh God. right <laughs> and in terms of graphic design and art um another great example is don't read the words just flip through the pages mork borg tells you exactly what that game is about just by looking at it. it's chaos it's it's blood and guts and weapons and and uh dungeons and not even you know i mean you don't even need to look at the specifics of what each of the illustrations is just the how it's presented every every page every two page spread is different um the fonts are all over the place it's like the and the game follows that the game is meant to be kind of a, a fever dream of of dungeon crawling and just you know chaos and getting characters killed um, and, um and just weird you know over the top fun and as a third example i'd like to give is i'd like to highlight uh 7c uh on the current edition there's one thing that a lot of people will notice uh when they go through the art it is explicitly queer <laughs> and it is like it is uh inclusive and um supports a, uh, a queer characters in the setting despite the fact that this is a historical setting when and uh the uh contemporary western world at the era was homophobic to put it slightly lightly was phobic period phobic. Uh, yeah phobic <laughs> just just phobic is just a plain good phobic <laughs> um so so yeah, the fact that the book is explicitly highlighting uh, these elements is a clear sign that it is uh, like it's signaling something both about the setting and about the desired gameplay experience. Yeah, I think art for sure tells you so much about a game. Like when you, uh, yeah, the, if you open up a book and you see art that kind of looks like your very traditional RPG style, the, the sort of art that you'd find if you opened up your 5e book, you know that you're probably dealing with a, like a, you know, like a, it's a TTRPG that has probably some fantasy elements, a lot of fighting, whatever it is. But if you open something up and you see, for example, like an art style in, um, Thirsty Sword Lesbians, where it's very cartoon style, bright colors, characters doing bombastic things, uh, or like swashbuckly romantic things. You know, just by looking at what like 
scenes are being presented, not just the people inside of them, but the scenes and the art style gives you, you know, all that you need to know there as well. I love um, the book that I really like is Good Society that's on my shelf because that is another one that's presented very like prim and proper. It has the little ribbon for the pages. It looks I love like it should Jane be a book Austin. of etiquette. <laughs> yes, I love it. And inside you see these characters that are dressed up in the Regency era style and they're doing Regency era things and nothing else. And you know, that's what we're doing in this game. We are we are doing Jane Austen just by looking at this book. I could figure if I just didn't know anything about it, flip through it. I as a Jane Austen fan would know instantly. Uh, I'm doing Pride and Prejudice. I'm doing Emma, whatever oh, it is. I suddenly realized um, the way you can think about this is like, imagine you're looking at the book and it's written in a language you don't speak, mm. that you can't read. And you're just looking at everything else about it. Um uh, like a slightly different bent on all of that is, for example, imagine opening up, you know, for people who don't speak um, Spanish, you open up a book, a Spanish version of Shadowrun, and you flip through the game and you see like, oh, here's a two page spread that is just a gigantic table of guns. <laughs> you know something about that game by looking at this gigantic table of guns. It means you're going to have a lot of choices. There's going to be a lot of crunchiness. There's going to be like, you might have multiple options at your at your disposal. Like your character could switch between different weapons. They're not just going to have something they stick with. There's probably rule, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, spe specifics of rules that like this weapon is going to be better in this situation versus that situation, and you're going to maybe want to learn those things. And so you know, going into the game that 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 game requires kind of that level of commitment toward those things as opposed to opening up a game book and like, Oh, there's, you know, like if you have a weapon, you have a weapon. Um, and there's no actual table to choose from. You can just decide what your weapon is and every weapon works the same way. Um, which are game I've, I've done games like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that tells you something very specific. Um, the page count of the book tells you something. Eight and a half by 11, 300 page book that's labeled player's handbook tells you something very specific about like what the, what the game is kind of going to contain. Like once you get inside, you realize there's huge lists of this and that there's powers or technology or spaceships or whatever it is that players do in the game. There's lots and lots of that stuff. Um, and you know, then there's going to be a GM's guide and there might be additional supplemental things that are like monsters or, or set or a setting book or, um, you know, big book of another, another big book of equipment or whatever that tells you things about what the game is going to be like. The game is going to focus on, you know, crunchy rules, lots of them. Um, it's, there's going to be a, a you know, a, a mental load that you're going to have to carry, or the GM is going to have to carry and, and drag out of you. Um, so, I mean, and as a designer, um, you know, you think about it's, it's worth thinking about like what you're, when you create a, a game that, you know, has a gigantic table of weapons, you better pay that off. Yeah. There better be a really cool combat system to take advantage of all those weapons with all their different abilities and statistics. Um, a big, a big pile of weapons and everybody has two hit points, you know, who cares if there's a giant pile of weapons other than maybe ranges, you know, like, like, you know, you, you have to give some thought to what you're um, preparing that, you know, what, what you want the game to be and what, and how much of 
each thing, each component you're you're giving to it. It's something that I found myself doing with Code Warriors because I was like, oh, this one's going to be a little more crunchy. There's going to be more equipment and abilities and stuff. You're going to have a character sheet that you're going to fill out that's not just going to be a playbook that you pick from. You're going to have a lot more choices. So like how many choices was enough, but how many choices was too many um, for the size of the game that I wanted it to be? I wanted it to be robust enough to have enough um, enough diversity and and in, in equipment and weapons and abilities, but not so much that it's going to make advancing your character a chore. That was my goal for that game. So those are things you can think about as well. I think also this is more like the editing side of things um, is also the presentation of chapters and chapter order and how you are like laying things out for the players to experience as they're reading through your book for the first time. Uh, that's another thing I agonize over, like, oh, what section is going first? What gets its own <laughs> chapter? Like, that takes up so much of my brain space. And listeners, the, this entire time, by the way, Jason's been pulling stuff off of his bookshelf and showing <laughs> examples of exactly what we're talking yes. about. <laughs> um, so on that specific note, I'd actually like to bring up the anecdote of one of my games. Sorry for plugging one of my no. games, but after please the do. War, <laughs> um, after the so, war. In After the War, this is set 10 years after the Galactic War, where millions of survivors are trying to rebuild on an alien world. So I made a, several uh, distinct choices. First of all, the entire book is grayscale, but it's um, a combination of concept art, style, and portraits, grayscale portraits of people. Because I'm trying to replicate um, World War One, World War Two era um, illustration photos, which were black and white, to sort of reinforce the uh, this is a post-war piece of information and media, uh, and it's also full of people's faces. Showing us um, a picture of her face. <laughs> Actually, a former president of the IGDN. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so it's full of people's faces. And the first chapter uh, is titled Survivor's Stories. And it's all of, um, uh, effectively uh, character stories in this setting. Uh, and that's before you even get the full explanation of the setting. It's before you do character creation. You literally just start with people's anecdotes and stories about what they've lived uh, lived through and what that's represented as mechanically. That's at the start of the book. So it's a focus on individual humans for the most part and the occasional alien. Um, first and foremost. But the game's all about fighting. Uh, yes, but it's about uh, uh, bar. Uh, it's about fighting for survival and... arguments and broken families. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> when I open up a book and I see like what I see in the book actually presented to me as a GM, that's giving me ideas for my stories. That's giving me an idea for the tones that I'm setting without even having to read the text. Obviously, the text is going to set the tone somewhat. Um, but if I open up a book and I see a bunch of black and white portraits of people, I know, well, this is going to be probably pretty heavily character focused. If all the characters look really sad, like, oh, this is a, 
this is a sad game. It's going to have some, some um, elements where we're really going to focus on characters and that's going to give me ideas for what I'm going to be presenting in my game, tying back into our, our first topic of the day. Like it's going to tell me what I need to focus on as a GM to truly represent this game. Or maybe this isn't the game for the kind of, the kind of style I want to play today. Let's not do this one. Let's open up, let's open up Orc instead, whatever it is. Uh, and I, I think there's a lot of magic that goes into that. And again, it's really hard. There are some people who, you know, you have the capability of hiring someone to do this. Um, but often if you're an indie designer, you're on your own trying to be a director, a writer, a producer all at once. It's very similar to how a movie is made. If if Wes Anderson had to do all of his own sound design and all of his own set design and all of his own costume work, he'd be much more of a genius than I already think he is. <laughs> we had Wes to do Anderson, a lot. first grip. And even more scenes <laughs> would be perfectly symmetrical and the camera wouldn't move. <laughs> yeah. Because he'd have so much else, so much other stuff to do. It's like, well, let's use this again. <laughs> well, I think that's really interesting because you can see, like, if you know a lot of designers and you follow their work, you can see some of those directorial um quirks that they use in their games um and mm -hmm. you can see those traits carry on through their games you can even see some of these traits evolve and i think that's really fun um and and special about game design it's very it's like a writing style too um or like artwork and art design um like we hired to help with a little bit of layout to like do a like a couple spreads, we hired Ray Najani, um, and the, he has like a really very like a, a a style about his work that is just like I see it. I'm like, oh, I know who did that, and I love that about I love that about art in general is that your your style just kind of carries with you. On that note, I have to also plug the project that I'm publishing with Ray. Uh, once more <laughs> to the void where uh, I did the first layout pass and now Ray's digging into the layout files. Uh, so we're going to have a hybrid of Jason plus Ray. Um, but uh, coming soon. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I, I love working with Ray. Um, just a, a really great um, like designer, like really good at putting together that sort of work. So if you're listening, you want some good ideas, go, go cop some ideas <laughs> and <laughs> go look. Um, I think as well, when you start getting better at this, you can start playing with some of the tropes and the styles that are expected versus the tone that you're actually setting with your work too. So I'm thinking, going back to like my movie analogy, I'm thinking about Ari Aster and Midsummer. Um, Midsummer is a horror film. It's, it's, very intense and brutal um but when you look at it and you look at all the images from it you think oh this is like some indie folk weird it doesn't look like a horror movie at pretty all. no it doesn't until and that, it does until it really does until it really does and that can make it even more unsettling so you mm -hmm. could play some you could do some real fun work like let's say i took the the setting and and the game of orc where you're playing orcs and you're all doing orc things and it's just silly um fun and i put on the sheen of good society and now suddenly we have taken a game that is at its heart i mean obviously this would be like a very satirical style game but you're playing orcs 
with the air of good society. And you have made something very unique and you're presenting it in a way that makes the players think, oh yeah, we are doing this really silly thing, but we're going to act like it's really serious. Like it's very high society. Um, You could do that. I think that's really effective with horror, especially Um, playing on tropes kind of increases tension, but you can do it in ways that increase drama. You can do it in ways that increase uh, the romance of something or ways that increase the, mm, the humor of things. Um, but that is really hard to do. <laughs> you have to have a really good group. And I think that would take like a really solid team. So I actually like to prompt a specific film that does this in a beautiful way. Uh, it's a um, movie from 2011 uh, titled The Artist. And it is uh, oh, a oh, yes. black and white silent film. Uh, and it's all about the end of the uh, silent cinema and how it was replaced by the talkies. Mm-hmm. As an old silent film actor is losing his way in the industry. Um, it's actually a French film, uh, technically. But no one talks for 95% of the movie. And at the end of the movie, you actually, people actually talk out loud for the first time. As the silent film gets replaced by the talkies. Like, it is several layers of awesome. (laughs) I remember seeing that in theaters and thinking it was really, really good. I haven't seen it since, though. No, but if, I think if, about it every once in a while. I think about the scene where, um, gosh, there's a little dancing scene in the center of it that I really, really enjoyed. Um, as long as we're sharing filmmakers, I want to chime in because I just watched a documentary on Steven Spielberg. Um, and he, uh, they, they went into, they talked quite a bit about his specific use of um, like where, where the camera goes, where the, what the camera does, what it focuses on, what it lingers on, even though action is happening elsewhere. Tarantino does this too, but Spielberg is very much in that. And, um, and they, di- they, they didn't dissect it in depth, but they talked a little bit about there's a scene in Munich where it is incredibly important for you to know exactly where every character is. Because there's going to be a race against the clock for one character to get from one place to another before something happens. And, um, you know, he like the, every bit of the camera work in that whole that whole sequence is reinforcing this character is in this room on this floor of this hotel. This character is over here. This character is in that car. They are this far apart. And this happens. And now what happened? You know, how, how does that play out? Um, so I just wanted to share that. So like Everybody. check out the documentary and also watch Munich. And then go watch <laughs> go watch the Fablemans after that, which is the which is the movie version of exploring his style and his life. I loved that movie. It was great. <laughs> I've got it on my list. Um, uh, <laughs> let's see. Back to games. What else? Sorry, uh, sorry. That's okay. Uh, but uh, going back to something I was talking about before, like the organization of your book, like literally the page space that you're giving something, um, does tell the players a lot about what is important in the game. Um, Craig, you mentioned this too. If you have, um, you know, you you have several art spreads with just weapons and you have lists and lists and lists of weapons. Weapons are important, obviously, in this game. Um, what you give its own chapter, like if weapons is just a little 
little bubble on one page, you know, that that might come up. Maybe that's more like a, like a side mechanic. That's something in, if you need it, when you do every, every once in a while, you might, but if it's its own chapter, you know, that that's probably going to come up every single time. Um, And that might mean as a writer and as an editor, you might have to get a little creative to make sure that things are properly balanced within actual text space. Um, And that can get even more complicated when you are translating or localizing something uh, because then you have to actually deal better with space. Um, But the actual space you give something, ooh, you open up good society, for example, and you see a whole thing about etiquette, you know. You got to You got to know this stuff. You got to read through this section. <laughs> um, a couple of things that I just, just because the, the things I'm most intimately familiar with, and there's decisions that were made um, for specific reasons. Like my, in my games, the majority of them use uh, the body text, the text that is most of the book, right? Um, the paragraphs is a, a serif font. It has all the little the little squiggles at the, the tops and bottoms of capital letters and, and well, lowercase letters too, for that matter, but a, ser- a seraphon, it's the more complex looking stuff. But, um, and when I was writing it, because that's what I'm also used to looking at, I, I wrote Code Warriors with a seraphon. And then the, the, like, the first question that came back um, when I was looking to lay it out and I was talking to a graphic designer about the overall look of everything was if this is supposed to be inside of a computer world, it needs to be a sans serif font. That is the type of font that is associated most with on-screen writing. Um, and that, you know, that made the decision like right there. I was like, Oh, obviously it needs to be, we need to change everything to a sans serif font. We need to find a sans serif font that is close size wise to the serif font that I had been using so that my page um, layout didn't get all screwed up. And I suddenly have too few or too, too many pages for what I was targeting. Um, you know, but that, uh, th- that, that came into play. Um, and sometimes you can have the the happy accident of like, you're putting something together and you're trying to hit a certain page count, either for an offset print run or for a, the multiples that you want for print on demand stuff, multiples of four or six, depending on the trim size of the book. Um, and you suddenly like, oh, I've got two pages. Well, I can I can put another thing in here. And you might find either something for an appendix or something that goes mid midway in the book that you didn't get a chance to include. Um, and you know, like where you place that, how you place that, give that, give some thought to all of that. Like with Die Laughing, I have a big list of horror movie tropes. The game is built around your characters in a horror movie, they're all gonna die. We're, we're building off of tropes. Everybody just kind of know, even if you don't watch horror movies, you know what the horror movie tropes are. Um, but I made a gigantic list at the end. So it's just a reference thing. Um, so it's it's a reinforcement that, oh yeah, this game is supposed to go ahead and be tropey and and rely upon the, the conventions that we all know about horror movies. Font is so important. Like the typeface you choose, the size, the everything is is so important. If you, I like going into Trader Joe's and just looking at the the fonts on all the products <laughs> and seeing like, oh, what does this mean about this? Like, I take pictures of the of the fonts. <laughs> like, I like this. I like this pairing. That's um, wonderful. <laughs> yeah, go go to Trader Joe's if you have one in your town and and just go take a look at what what the products the presentation of the products are saying. Um, another thing I was thinking about was examples of play, you know, some games will go so far as to have a (laughs) multi-page example, you know, example of how the game might play. That's, that's telling the reader something about 
the game. Um, you know, the, 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 it, it's prescribing more. Um, it's it's the, the, the actual body of the text of what you're reading tells you like how the game is being played. But the fact that it's there tells you something about the intent of the game too, that there's like the, 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 the designer probably had a very specific idea. That doesn't mean you have to play it that way, but it's telling you that the designer had a very specific idea of like, this is kind of how the game plays. Um, for capers, for my game capers, um, it uses playing cards. And I was like, we got to show people how to do the playing card flips, not just in text. So it has an entire not a page, but like most of a page with a graphic that describes a, a, a trait check taking place where you're flipping multiple, you know, flipping the first card, flipping the next card, what happens, you know, it's got little descriptions of like why the, why the, the player is flipping another card or not um, and gets that point across. And that, that tells the players when they're, if somebody's flipping through uh, the quick start or looking at the book on a shelf, they'll be like, Oh, Oh, it's okay. It's got a graphic that shows how these playing cards are being flipped. And it's not like, characters playing cards at a table it's like they're clearly telling you it's telling you that there's that there's like a rule that has to be learned that's out of the ordinary that that the, mm. you know you as a reader may not be used to so if you're if you design a game where the dice system is something really different than what people are normally used to um you know a graphic might help to convey that information where you can point out like well when you roll these numbers together and you roll those numbers together rather than just text like the visual representation a lot of times helps some people and then you're also conveying in the body of your game that there's some out of the ordinary dice um rule information that you will need to learn as as a player jason you pulled some books off your shelf and i wanted to know the titles of <laughs> thinking with type by ellen lupton uh, the Elements of Typographic Style by Robert Bringhurst. Uh, I've got about <laughs> four or five other typography books hiding in there. Um, I have a problem. <laughs> but well, the first, I love, I love the first step in typography. <laughs> the first step in solving your problem is admitting you have one, right? Actually, I think the first step is to buy another typography book. <laughs> That's that's the intermediary step between all of the other steps. Ah, okay. <laughs> you just keep adding that step, and when in doubt, buy another typography book. When in doubt, when in doubt, buy another DVD. When in doubt, buy another comic book. <laughs> it makes you happy. That's what matters. <laughs> Jason, do you have any final thoughts for us? I my final thoughts would are that focus is one of the fundamental and um, under-recognized and under-celebrated tools that we have at our disposal in all layers of the hobby. From players who can focus uh, uh, their characters' stories and drive the action, to game masters who can ensure that the spotlight is shared uh, equally and de-emphasize certain things for thematic purposes, to the to the game designer who is intentionally deciding what arenas of play are central to the game and require uh, more um, procedures and mechanisms to uh, focus play on those elements. So I think that 
just keeping our minds open to using focus as a tool will help a lot of people on no matter where they are in the hobby. Well, thank you for joining us with this wonderful topic. Thank you for having me. Where can we find you on the internet and such? Uh, you could find me on Twitter, but since that probably won't even exist by the time this posts, uh, I am now on Mastodon, uh, at Genesis of Legend, uh, on the Dice.Camp uh, instance. I'm also available on my website at www.genesisoflegend.com or genesisoflegend.ca. And you can find our games in places such as uh, Indie Press Revolution, uh, the IGDN uh, convention booths, and uh, hopefully at a friendly local gaming store near you. Yay. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter and Tumblr at Adjoska. You can find me on TikTok at just as awful. And you can find my games on DriveThruRPG or on itch at wannabe games or at wannabegames.com. Yeah. And you can find me on Twitter and at dice.camp on Mastodon at uh, my name there for both of those places is Nerdburger Craig. The uh, website is nerdburgergames.com and the games are all available on DriveThruRPG uh, and, you know, at the at those IGDN booths as well and, and sometimes my own booth, which is coming. Uh, big news this year. Nerdburger Games is getting its own booth at Gen Con. Ooh. So I'm having a bit of a panic attack in January now as I start planning for that. So wish me luck. Good luck. Thank you to our opening and closing theme song, which is Avil by Step Sex, licensed under Creative Commons. And thank all of you for listening. And we'll see you back here next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.